The FAA's order for employees to return to the office didn't sit well with at least one of its unions. They call the order a clear violation of their collective bargaining agreement. We get more now from the president of the Professional Aviation Safety Specialists, Dave Spiro. Mr. Spiro, good to have you on. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. And just to set the scene here, exactly how many members do you represent at the FAA and what do the aviation safety specialists do there? So we represent over 11,000 employees at the FAA. We have a bargaining unit in the DOD as well, but they install, maintain, support, certify air traffic control equipment and inspect and oversee both the commercial and general aviation industries and all the support functions that go with it. Administrative, safety professionals, logistics folks, we got them from soup to nuts. And just before we get into the collective bargaining and the clauses and so forth, it sounds like the type of work where you got to be on the job anyway. Well, it depends. It depends where you are and what you do. And I think that's some of the argument that we're making uh, with the FAA, that they have to establish whether or not the request of the employees to telework is workable and whether or not it has an effect on the efficiency of the service. And, and some of those jobs, yes, you're right. We have to be in an air traffic control facility or uh, in some capacity on the job because that's where the work is. But that's not always the case with our aviation safety inspectors. They could be living in New York and overseeing the commercial operators in California. Wow. All right. So what is the, I guess, state now, aside from the FAA order, but prior to that, what's your sense of the level to which people were teleworking generally? So on the aviation safety side, a significant number of them were teleworking. They were across the country. Some of them have virtual facilities. So the way that the aviation safety organization is built, these folks are not, they're not all touching airplanes. Let me put it that way. Everybody doesn't walk out and look at an aircraft. They oversee uh, the industry itself. They make sure that they're doing all the maintenance they're supposed to do. They're keeping their records. They're following the safety management systems that they're prescribed to do under the Code of Federal Regulations. So they do go out and touch aircraft. And, and let me let me be clear, they do go out to have in-person activities. They meet at the facilities sometimes. As required, they do show up in various places. And when we talk about telework for the aviation safety workforce, we're not saying that they're not out there in the field doing surveillance of the aviation safety world. We're saying they're not showing up to a brick and mortar facility every day. Got it. And just as a detail, if you're looking at, say, logs kept for maintenance of aircraft and so forth, that word conjures up big old paper books and people with fountain pens writing in, yes, the aileron worked on this DC-6. But in fact, I'm guessing all of that is online anyway nowadays. Absolutely. And it's so extensive and there are so many systems that it's required to be done that way. And clearly, all the commercial operators, all the carriers, and even the charters under 135 and 121 under commercial, they all do that sort of thing. It's to their benefit. So we just make sure that from that perspective that they're doing those records. But we do go out and oversee them on a case-by-case basis. We do certification of pilots. They do check rides, maintenance checks. So there's a lot of work that these folks do in the field. And this decision to say everybody's going to show up on a Wednesday and everybody's got to be in the office six days a week is ridiculous. We're speaking with Dave Spiro. He's president of the Professional Aviation Safety Specialists, one of the unions representing FAA employees. And so tell us about the collective bargaining agreement and what the clause or clauses are in there now that you feel are violated by the FAA order. 
clearly the edict, just go out there and say, all right, six days of pay period, you're going to show up at work and Wednesdays you're going to come in, violates our contract where it talks about specific criteria that management is supposed to follow when they grant or deny a request. First, how reasonable is the request of the employees? Secondly, is it workable? And thirdly, what's the effect of the request upon the efficiency of the service? They have to look at all of these criteria in a fair, objective, and equitable way. And they have to use sound business practices, not arbitrary limitations. And that language is right in our contract, not arbitrary limitations. So in our opinion, this is an arbitrary decision by the FAA's management board. They're telling us that they're following the OMB direction, but the OMB direction tells them to do exactly what's in our collective bargaining agreement, make sound business practices and not arbitrary decisions. So we're pursuing it from that perspective. And what have you done to pursue it so far? Have there been talks and have the FAA management people been willing to sit down and hear you out? I mean, what's the status of all that now? The answer is yes. I, I think that we certainly got their attention. They have reached out to us. We have had some preliminary discussions around it. Uh, we've been clear that our collective bargaining agreement has been violated. We do not feel as though there's room for a compromise here. Uh, they have to follow the contract, and that's clearly what we've told them. They are reaching out to us frequently, three times this week. I've had conversations with senior leadership at FAA, and I think they are concerned as to how this rolled out. And, you know, to be quite honest, I don't think that senior leadership got good advice from labor relations on this within their own organization. That's a problem. From what you're saying, I get the sense that labor relations, at least between PASS and the FAA, are generally pretty good, except for this. Well, you know... It, it, <laughs> or am I overstating it? <laughs> you might be a little bit. I would say, look, we're not in a cold war with them right now. Let me Let me say that. We are negotiating two collective bargaining agreements. Right now, for the aviation safety workforce, we've been at a collective bargaining agreement for 18 months. We are having some breakthroughs now. And I think that maybe, according to the agency, I think there's a, some willingness to put that to rest. But we still have to finish a contract for the air traffic organization. Those are big, heavy lifts for us as a labor union. And, and to be doing two contracts at once, I think we're going to accomplish it pretty soon. And when that happens... There will be new provisions for us to work together on, and hopefully we'll have provisions around collaboration, which will put to rest some of the LR uh, issues that we occasionally have. And do you interact with NATCA, for example, the controllers themselves, their union, and do you kind of coordinate these types of issues ever? Thanks for asking. So, yes, we do. You know, since I came into this position uh, as president of the union, one of the first things I did was reach out to the new leadership over at NACA. And we've consistently been building a relationship over there. Uh, uh, Rich Santa and I from NACA talk uh, pretty frequently. Uh, and we even talked about this issue uh, last week. So we're on the same page with these things. And uh, we do have a good friendship and a relationship as labor unions together. And of course, NATCA members, they are by necessity on the job in the towers, pretty much fair to say. I would say with the air traffic controllers, that's you know pretty much the case. I, I was a technician for many years and worked around them. I can't speak for NACA, but I do know that they do have a significant number of folks. They represent engineers and other bargaining units as well. So they do have folks that are capable of not needing to be in those facilities. And they have a pretty good beef too with the agency on this. 
So are you seeking then for that order to just be rescinded and then things to continue as they have been? Because I guess the evidence shows the planes aren't crashing and the records are being kept and the equipment is getting installed. So are you looking for things to be as they were prior to that order coming out or something else? We are. I think that the order needs to be rescinded, at least for our bargaining unit employees, the people we represent. They're you know clearly free to do whatever it is they want to do with non-bargaining unit employees. But at the same time, we've been able to show that we're able to keep the national airspace system moving and running. And I think that from that perspective, it's something that they got to respect and understand. If they want to have more scrutiny over telework and what it looks like, then they need to follow our collective bargaining agreement to make that happen. Dave Spiro is president of the Professional Aviation Safety Specialists, PASS, one of the unions at the FAA. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on today. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. uh, And that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? 
Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative, it's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, de describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me 
uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do, even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard. And don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.